electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. The people are my friends. Just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. So go ahead and laugh. Just laugh. That's how I felt this morning when I said in my morning meeting for club members that we may have seen the last bad inflation number. I think that's why the market rebounded from its lows, though, after opening ugly. Dow ultimately finishing off 209 points, bit of a bummer. S&P dipping 0.45%, but the Nasdaq declining just 0.15%. And that was a huge comeback from the opening. And it's why I think we have a real shot at putting in, I'm going to say it, a short-term bottom here given that the Federal Reserve can probably put through one more big rate hike and then declare victory. I know it sounds crazy to say we're winning the war against inflation when the CPI, Consumer Price Index, was up 9.1% last month. But you know what? I believe it. What makes me so certain, well, you know, I think things are about to get better, and the conventional wisdom says it's going to get worse. But remember, I think the conventional wisdom is rearview mirror. Why do I say this? Simple. You have to get granular when you look at these numbers. You have to get your hands dirty. You have to listen to the stocks that tell you the future. I am a stock whisperer. Before I get into into what causes terrible 9% inflation number, let me just say up front that I am not a Fed dove. I'm not someone who wants easy money right now. We need to bring the hammer down on inflation. Kind of the same way Kathy Bates hobbled the late great James Kahn and Kramer Fave Misery. We need a 100 basis point smackdown, a quadruple rate hike by the Fed at the July meeting, because they got to show some money. They got to they gotta show that they mean it. They have to show the markets that they are not going to let them. They're going to down there giving the markets a business. Plus, the job market's strong enough that I don't even think it's going to cause many layoffs. So it's not going to be like it's suddenly people are going to be going. I think they're going to be going. Bye, bye, bye. That said, despite the headline numbers, we made tremendous progress in the fight against inflation. We have. So how the heck did we get this 9.1% CPI increase? Well, let's go over it. Let's start with food. Prices jumped from a baseline of 1.0 in May to 1.3 in June. 
Now, that's not just red hot. It's molten lava needed to subdue the T-1000 in Terminator 2, one of the classics. But a great deal of that food inflation comes down to the war in Ukraine. And more important, this number is extremely out of date. Almost all the grains are now trading down. Hey, you know what? I'll throw in cotton. That's getting killed. If you want to get a real read on agriculture, you know what you have to do? You have to go to the stock whisperer. I like to look at the stock of John Deere. Do you think this shows you that grains are about to fly up? That stock's been obliterated, signaling at the long-running grains as it lasts over. Deere traded at 446 in April. It's now down to 296 and change, and as sales are expected to weaken. This is the single best indicator of what's going to happen to your food of any other out there. But who else is looking at it except the stock whisperer? Put simply, we have too much grain and too much corn, at least in the developed world, okay? Not in the undeveloped world. That's a whole different Ukraine-related stories. This tells us that you'll soon see lower prices at the supermarket. No one believes me. I don't care. I can't tell you how big those declines will be, but I wish the president would stop bashing the oil industry and focus on why food prices might not be coming down as they should. Hey, maybe you should give a jingle to Cisco, S-Y-Y, the gigantic food distributor. To get a sense of what's really going on here, they would know. The grain complex is down big, so in a functional economy, these declines should flow back to you, the consumer. I think you can go either way, but a little presidential badgering can't hurt. Next is energy. Oh, man, here's a suspect category. Earlier today, I was speaking with Lynn Good from Duke Energy, the utility colossus, uh, about uh, energy. It was during CNBC's Evolve conference earlier, and she reminded me that natural gas prices have come down pretty substantially of late. Those lower prices are going to help consumers. To me, energy's inflation is a classic case of a rearview mirror concern. More with good later in the program. We were fretting about gasoline, right? But can we take a breath for a moment and, and realize that when oil was at 120, everybody thought it was going to go to 150? Wrong. It went to 95. So let's not get too carried away. July's numbers will be materially lower than June's for the whole energy complex. I actually suspect oil has peaked, even though I don't think oil is going to plummet. This is, of the ones that, are, that can remain elevated, I think oil is one of them. Because right now we know it's kept down artificially by the uh, strategic petroleum reserve sales. Next up are the actual commodities. Now, I don't think aluminum, copper, and steel and lumber should necessarily be considered consumer-oriented. But I will say this. Look out below. These commodities are all in crash mode. The collapse in metals is recent and simply wasn't captured in the June numbers at all. But if you look under the hood, it's clear as day. How about apparel? Now, the fact that we had apparel inflation in the month of June in the wake of the horror show quarters from Walmart and Target, where the latter's dumping its supply of poorly selling clothes, makes me feel like the number that we saw this morning is just a canard. Just about anyone who knows the industry particularly the mall stores, can tell you that we've got an apparel glut. Hey, you see the stock in Gap stores lately? You know, they make apparel. In fact, this is one of the worst cuts I have ever seen in apparel. I mean, horrendous. I mean, look, I mean, I had that American Eagle outfit from my Chapel Trust. That was just, that was just a horror show. But they have way too much inventory. Hey, talk about rearview mirror. Anyone trying to make you worry about apparel costs? They're a sham. Medical care commodities, all right, up slightly, but there are more people going to the hospital for surgeries now that COVID's calmed down. I wouldn't call that lasting inflation. It's the definition of transitory. 
I'm not sure what to do uh, to make of the jump in transportation costs. All I can say is there's a lot of pent-up demand because of COVID. Travel's discretionary, and when the money people saved up from the pandemic years gets used up, that place won't be filled. If you listen to Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta, this morning, uh, you didn't get any sense that prices would go much higher, especially after his company reported a giant shortfall. Now to the alleged intractables, the ones that I actually don't have an answer for. Cars. No, those prices have not come down. The auto companies are still having trouble getting all the chips they need to boost production. But my sources in the semiconductor industry indicate that the cavalry will be here by the fall and that some automakers are already getting their allocations. At the same time, the Mannheim used vehicle value index has been coming down nicely. It's not good yet, but it's getting better, especially if the Fed makes it more difficult to get financing with a 100 basis point rate hike. Next, wages. I know it seems like they can't come down, but go some, speak to someone in Silicon Valley, and I'll tell you, they, they, there are way too many engineers, and they're losing their jobs left and right. To me, that's an arbiter of what's to come. Finally, there's the one that everyone is concerned about except for me, housing. It is absolutely true that ha- there is a housing shortage. It's absolutely true that the landlords have relentlessly raised rents, often to absurd levels. They are shameful. Uh, but they also were frozen by COVID and are trying to recoup and recover. I think they should be careful because new home prices up nearly 40 percent in two years, according to the Case Shiller National Home Price Index, are beginning to price people out. The spring selling season was not that good. The numbers in some of the hottest areas are now getting weak. Mortgage rates will be the coup de grace for housing after the next rate hike. We know from RH, the old restoration hardware, that even the highest of the high end is being impacted. And the banks that report tomorrow will only confirm exactly what I just told you. All of this tells me that anyone who looked around at today's CPI number and said, hey, I got to sell because here comes the big one. Time for the Fed to raise rates to 10 percent like they did uh, the last time we had inflation this bad. I think you're going to be dead wrong. Bottom line. Sure. Go ahead and laugh. Be like John Travolta in his legendary performance in Carrie. But me, if I were you, I'd head out of the auditorium before the show begins, because sooner or later, everyone else will realize inflation has just peaked. Chris from Rhode Island. Chris. Booyah, Jimbo, my brother. How you doing tonight? Booyah, my friend. What's happening? All right. I'm here sitting by the pool, swiping away on my favorite app, Bumble. Love the company. What do you think about the stock? Let me know. All right. Well, this is a very interesting one because this cohort has just gotten whacked. But the company is profitable. However, you are paying a fortune for the company. I would put a half position on, no more than that. And remember, it is speculative because it did not. uh, It has not fallen low enough to meet my criteria for inexpensive. Sooner or later, everyone will realize that inflation may have peaked. Oh, man, buddy, tonight. From ESG to nuclear, Duke Energy has its sights set on the future. And earlier I had a chance to sit down with the CEO as part of CNBC's Evolve Summit to get a sense of what they have in the pipeline. Then the euro and the dollar are equal for the first time in 20 years. So could the euro continue to fall or could a rebound be waiting in the wings? And is anyone thinking about that possibility? I'm going off the charts to find out. And Portillo's, the company behind Chicago's iconic hot dog, is caught in inflationary crosshairs. I'm learning more about how the company's fighting rising prices, but people chowing down with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? 
Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I still think the second half of the year will be much better than the horror show that was the first half. But this hasn't been a great week. And I know a lot of people were shocked by today's 9% inflation number. In an environment like this, it pays to own some safety stocks. And there are very few safe places to hide, the best being the utilities. Nice, steady businesses with high dividends. There's one in particular that I like right here, and it's called Duke Energy. It's a Charlotte-based utility supplying electricity and natural gas to millions in the southeast and the Midwest. Right now, Duke's transitioning away from coal and toward low-carbon energy sources. Even while they're doing that, the company's planning to generate 5 to 7% annual earnings growth over the next five years. That's very high for utility. And, hey, it's working. In a hideous market, Duke Energy's up more than 2% for the year. At these levels, the stock trades at less than 20 times earnings, 3.75% yield. Now, look, if you're worried about the economy, and it makes sense to be worried, then a stock like this could be a very good call. But don't take it from me. Earlier today, I got to speak with Lynn Good, the chair and CEO of Duke Energy at CBC's Evolve Global Summit event. Why don't you take a look at some of the highlights from our great talk? I had the great fortune of being someone who interviewed Mr. Rogers, Jim Rogers, someone who uh, really was, for many people, Duke Energy before you. He was committed to coal. Why? Because he wanted the most reliable power. He wanted the cheapest power. And then one day, he basically had a revelation, a conversion, if you don't mind, saying this is just a bad idea. There were protests. But he took it upon himself to say, you know what, we're backing away. Uh, At the same time that he backed away, there are people in the communities uh, that that you serve who are deeply involved and need coal to do well. How do you reconcile that with the idea that you have a senator, perhaps the most powerful senator in the country, who really says, let's go slow in this coal removal? Well, I think a couple of things to point to, Jim, is we've already made incredible progress in reducing our dependence on coal and lowering carbon emissions. So for Duke Energy, carbon emissions are down almost 45 percent from 2005, which has been the result of an orderly transition from coal using natural gas, of course, using renewables, wind and solar, increasingly using battery technology. And as we talk to our communities and we talk to our states about the need to continue to make progress on carbon, but also continue to introduce diversity into the supply mix, 
Uh, I believe that conversation is going well. I think people understand that over the next several decades, we must transition away from fossil fuels. We must transition away from coal. We need to introduce renewables, battery technology, energy efficiency. Nuclear needs to be a part of the equation. And so our commitment is to continue to have these conversations, not only with customers, but with policymakers, with communities that could be impacted, so that that transition is something we all understand, we can plan for, and we can make the adjustments necessary for the economy of the future. So Lee, you mentioned battery technology twice. We're quite familiar with, and my travel trust owns shares in Honeywell. Uh, Darius Damchek, the CEO, has come on several times and told us, do not... Uh, I'd be surprised if they don't have some battery technology that will blow us away. Are you working with Darius on this? We are, in fact. And Darius is right down the street from me here in Charlotte. Uh, and battery technology is something we're spending a lot of time on, Jim, because we look at it as an important part of the equation as we introduce more renewables, having a way to store that power so that it meets the needs of our customers when they have demand for energy is, is essential. And so we are working with Honeywell. Uh, we're also working with a variety of other technologies, hydrogen, advanced nuclear. These are the types of technologies that we think are going to be essential as we get toward the end of this decade, into the 2030s, and continue our progress on transition to a clean energy future. Okay, so then I've been a big believer in nuclear, even from the days when, uh, when David Crane was in Texas trying to do it and failed, failed dramatically in several of his initiatives, but most really the biggest flop I thought he had was nuclear. I know Canada's got some small models. I know GE's trying to do some things. But having, uh, when the uh, Russian soldiers went to Chernobyl and actually kicked up the soil there, there was a lot of radiation. Uh, Midnight at Chernobyl, an incredible text, basically tells you that you can't stop a meltdown without just phenomenal uh, casualties occurring. And it makes me wonder, uh, uh, we keep hearing that nuke could have a renaissance, but every time I think of nuke, I think of the one that I live next door to in Sacramento. I think of Three Mile Island, which I cover as a reporter, and I think of Chernobyl, and I, and I did not cover Fukushima, but I say to myself, we're kidding ourselves. We keep talking about nuke, but it's too expensive and it's too dangerous. What makes you, as a person who really knows this stuff, even confident at all that a new nuclear power plant could be built in this country? Jim, I think the safety of nuclear is job one. And you've mentioned a couple of instances around the world where safety has been a concern. And our commitment at Duke Energy and in the U.S. nuclear industry is to continue to maintain safety as the very highest priority. And if I think about Duke Energy, 50% of the power that we produce in the Carolinas is from uh, nuclear. And safety is what we do every day, job one, to make sure that those plants are operating in a way that not only we expect, but our customers, our communities, et cetera. So safety to me is job one. And I do believe nuclear can be operated in a safe way. If we think about the role it needs to play in the future, and we believe in low carbon, think about a world without nuclear. And I think about the Carolinas, where 50% of the power today is from carbon-free nuclear. I do not have a technology that can replace that today. So finding a way to keep those plants running and running safely is important to reducing carbon. And then if we can find a way to bring in commercially viable, so cost-effective, smaller modular reactors that are, of course, safe, I believe they could be a part of the solution. So we are advocates for increased investment, continuing investment in those nuclear technologies to see if they can reach a point of commercial availability in the 2030s so that they can be a part of a diverse mix of resources that we need to accomplish our 
goals around carbon reduction. Well, do you think the industry is a villain or a, a, a shady uh, and not capable of compromise, as I believe our president feels? And I say that if only because the president felt that the Saudi Arabians were pariahs, were murderers. He was happy to sit down. All the federal opportunities you want over there in Saudi Arabia, but no sit down with Mike Worth. No sit down with with Darren Woods. No sit down with with Scott Sheffield. No sit down with these people in oil and gas whom you and I both know are reasonable people who are doing their absolute best to try to wean out the carbon where they can do. What is going on in Washington that makes it so that they are the enemy of what you are trying to accomplish in many ways? Well, I think energy has been a topic, Jim, for some time, and there are conversations on both sides of the equation, carbon reduction, energy independence, affordability, uh, energy stability. I mean, there are so many different dimensions, and I think we need to talk about all of them, and we need to have a long-term view. I think about my business. I'm planning for what I believe is going to be necessary to serve my customers to electrify our economy in the 2030s and the 2040s. I'm trying to get to net zero by 2050. That means we have to have conversations about a variety of resources, about diversity of supply, because there's never been a single source of power generation that has powered our country. And I don't expect there to be over the next several decades. So I would encourage the conversations. I think we can have them. Good. I'm glad you say that because uh, not compromising with great Americans who've done their absolute best, like Mike, worth three billion to 10 billion in just a few years time in order to be able to make it so there's more renewables means that that person is a great American and should be sat down with and should not be insulted, which is what I think he was. That's my own words. You are in a leadership position. I want to thank you so much. Lynn Good. Coming up, is it curtains for a key global currency? Kramer's not flipping a coin. He's going off the charts on the Euro next. This is where capitalism was created in our country. Bringing mad money to the New York Stock Exchange is like bringing it home. And I can't wait to bring it to you. Mad Money at the NYSE, starting Monday, CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. For a moment yesterday, the euro traded at parity with the U.S. dollar, a one-to-one exchange rate, and it's still only up very slightly from there. At this point, the euro has been obliterated. Almost nobody thinks it could recover. That's a very big deal. A cheap currency makes exports from the eurozone much less expensive and imports to Europe much more expensive. It can make our goods much less competitive, and it can play havoc with tech service companies, as Bill McDermott, the CEO of ServiceNow, mentioned earlier this week on Mad Money. But is the euro going to stay down here? 
I don't love betting on currencies directly because these markets are too unpredictable. However, with the dollar front and center as a reason to buy or sell stocks, and with the depressed euro hurting our company's earnings, you can bet I want to know the direction of the European unit. Perhaps I want to know it more than almost anything else. So tonight, we're taking a closer look at the euro with an outside expert. Yep, we're going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner, a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. Even with all the pessimism surrounding the euro right now, she emailed me this week that she thinks it can recover. And I said, oh, come on, really? Show me. So first, let's put this moment in historical perspective. Take a look at the monthly chart of the euro to dollar exchange rate over the last two decades. Back in the early, in early 2008, when I actually went to Europe foolishly, the euro was trading at buck sixty, mostly because the greenback was in the gutter. Nobody thought the dollar had a chance of recovering versus the euro. You started seeing athletes and other celebrities demand to be paid in euros rather than dollars. It's sort of similar to last year when all sorts of people wanted to be paid in Bitcoin, including the new mayor of New York City. Not a great call. Yet, to the surprise of these A-listers, in July of 2008, the euro started to weaken against the dollar, quickly collapsing from a buck sixty to a dollar twenty-three in three months. The currency markets are like that. To borrow a line from my doppelganger, Vlad Lenin, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. The euro swiftly erased some of its decline, but it's been working its way slowly lower and lower ever since. At this point, buck sixty is obviously a distant memory. Instead, the euro spent the bulk of the last 10 years bouncing around between buck 05 and buck 20. Garner notes that the current sell-off is a little unusual. You never see a breakdown below $1.03. In the big picture, though, she thinks a one-to-one exchange ratio, well, it's probably as unsustainable as this buck sixty. That's it. With so much, so much tra- traders trying to push the euro down, that's what they're doing. So many traders are actually trying to push it down. She would be surprised if there wasn't one last probe down to crush the remaining balls before the thing can bottom and start rallying. If so, that might mean that the euro briefly goes to 97 or 98 versus the greenback, and then bingo. Once the narrative shifts, Garner's predicting a swift rally. Back in 2017, the euro dipped below 105, so let's go on our way back machine and look at that. But within a year, it was back to buck twenty-five. No one thought this move. I remember all these moves. No one thought this was going to occur. And this one, I believe me. Do you think I booked my trip here, betting that I thought that the euro was going to do this, the dollar was going to do that? No. Now you can see that the euro's currently got a floor of support right near the one dollar mark in a saner world where Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. Garner thinks the selling probably would have dried up at around a buck eight. But we don't live in a world like that, right? We don't live in a sane world. Right now, investors all over the globe can't get enough U.S. dollars, which is why the euro to dollar exchange rate is like this. However, as Garner sees it, things are finally starting to normalize in commodities and even bonds, which will eventually flow through to the currency. She points out that the euro has a floor of trend line support right around where its currency is trading. At the same time, the relative strength index, or the RSI, okay, that's an important momentum indicator, 
is very close to oversold levels. I would argue that it's at oversold levels. Historically, when it gets down here, well, look out above. Selling quickly dries up. Of course, most investors don't want to mess with the currency markets. They prefer stocks, which I think is right. But Garner says people are underestimating the impact of currency fluctuations on the portfolios. Get this. I did not know this. Check out this chart of the S&P 500 futures in green and the euro in blue going back to late last year. Over the last 180 trading days, Garner notes that the euro and the S&P futures have settled in in the same direction 86% of the time. Look at that. There's a very strong correlation, obviously. Assuming it continues, a stronger euro will eventually translate into a stronger U.S. stock market. That makes sense. The higher the euro goes, the more money our companies make doing business over there. And we have a lot of companies, by the way, where we would lift numbers. Um, it is for them to compete with Europe, European firms. It's very hard as long as it's where it is. That said, if the euro keeps heading lower, well, you know what? That is bad, bad news for the S&P. But Garner thinks that's unlikely. So let's watch the euro really closely. I get up when you get up in the morning, find out where the euro is. It's probably going to determine a lot of what happens. Next, there's the question of seasonality. Commodities, currencies, and even stock indices have seasonal patterns, annual cycles of feast and famine. That seasonality isn't always decisive. It's just a general trend, but it's always worth watching. Now, get this. When you look at the seasonal pattern, the Euro futures from Moore Research Center, Inc., you can see that historically it's displayed a sharp tendency to find a meaningful low in early July. In other words... This is the time of the year when you typically expect the euro to bottom. The subsequent rally often extends to early October. Doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen again, but it's one more piece of evidence that favors the bulls. Remember, no one's thinking this is good. I want to read it. I I really got to make this point here. This move would shock people. There's so much money betting against the euro right now. It's just amazing. Now, I want you to take a look at this chart of the euro and the euro C-vol, which is like the CBOE volatility index, but for the particular currency rather than the S&P 500. According to Garner, you'll often see large spikes in volatility when an asset is approaching an inflection point. We've seen this time and again in stocks, commodities, and currencies. For example, a large spike in the VIX often marks the low in the stock market. We saw a similar volatility shock in oil earlier this year on the heels of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The peak in oil volatility was also the peak in oil itself, at least so far. Why? Because these volatility indices are based on action in the options pits. When traders are willing to pay outrageous amounts for for options as a hedge, well, you know what? That's a sign of desperation. Garner thinks we're seeing that in the euro right now. Aside from the March of 2020, when the initial COVID onslaught shut down the entirety of Europe, this is the highest level of implied volatility we've seen in the euro in many, many years. Take a look at that. That's that. And when you see a volatility spike like this, Garner points out that it often concludes with a trend reversal, meaning the market switches direction. Look at what happened in 2018 when we had the big spike, Okay. You had the uh, CVAL going down. You had the euro going down. We had the big spike. And then this. In 2020, there was a volatility spike right before the euro bottom. Garner's betting that happens again. Boy, would that be something? The biggest reason she likes the euro here is that everyone else seems so bearish. When everybody's thinking the same thing, the thing that gets priced into the markets and the opposite actually unfolds. Garner's seeing sentiment readings that suggest only 30% of the market participants are friendly to the euro rebound right now. And if you only went by the media, there's even less pessimism. I'm sorry, less optimism. The media has really just written this thing off. She thinks it means that negativity is already baked in. Plus, it doesn't hurt 
that the European Central Bank just today said they're paying attention to the impact of exchange rates on inflation. So here's the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by Carly Garner suggest that the euro's ready to rebound. If not now, then very soon. And I wouldn't be surprised if she's right. And it helps take the whole stock market up with it. David in Oregon. David. Yes. David, you're up. Okay, is this Jim? Yes, it is. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me. And first of all, I'd like to say that you have been more right than wrong on everything I've looked at. Oh, thank you, man. That's all you can ask. People think you can bat a hundred, you know, bat a thousand are just crazy. Don't forget, you can bat 300, you can be in the Hall of Fame. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm just telling the facts. I've watched Mad Money for years. I've been in the market for 50. Oh, thank you. I love it. I like all your ideas. Uh, you're very uh, kind, and I needed that. You know, sometimes in, in Twitter, a lot of times people aren't that nice to me. I don't get that. Well, they get emotional about losing money on their own, and they don't. They have to find a they find a boogeyman. Help them. They find Jimmy Chill. All right. Well, let's go yeah. to work. What do we got? Okay, I like uh, Uber, and I've been watching it go down and down, and like everything else, uh, I think it's a, a great company. Uh, if I bought it here, would you recommend that, let's say that you like it, and I bought it here and sold covered calls against it to protect myself for a while until this market gets straightened up? What do you think? Well, I'm afraid that, you, that you're capping your upside if you do that. Uh, I think Uber can still go lower. And the reason I say that is because I don't think the number's going to be that good. And you might want to wait until the next quarter to do some buying. And, David, I really want to thank David from Oregon. I want to thank you. I take a lot of heat. I am in the arena. I come out here every day. But you know what? All I can do, as my mom, my late mom would say, is do my best. All right. Tonight's chartist, Carly Garner, actually thinks something real crazy, that the euro is ready to rebound. Don't forget tonight. If not now, then very soon. I wouldn't be surprised if she's right, but I don't think... I think everybody else would be. Hey, much more man money tonight, including my exclusive with Portillo's. Could hot dogs be a red hot investment for your portfolio? I'm going to check in with the CEO of this regional player that wants to take over the world. Then the Elon Musk Twitter takeover saga, it continues. But from an investment standpoint, could it be a wise decision to view Twitter as a buy at these levels? Let me give you my take. In order to call us rapid fire, tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. When will it finally be safe to start speculating on some of last year's beaten down IPOs? <laughs> it's really tough out there because we were flooded with new listings last year. The whole IPO complex turned toxic, the good and the bad. Wall Street stopped trying to distinguish the ones that we should want from the ones that we shouldn't. And there was too much bad. But there are a few solid stories in the class of 2021. If you know where to look, take Portillo's. That's the fast casual restaurant chain serving Chicago-style street food. The thing came public last October, right before the IPO window slammed shut, with the stock surging from 20 to 29 on its first day of trading, before jumping to 57 in shades at its peak last November. By the time we took a look at it in mid-December, the stock had pulled back to the low 30s. I told you the fundamentals were good, but you needed to wait for a little weakness. Since then, well, Portillo's stock has come down to $19 today. This is a beloved concept in the Chicago area, with a compelling reach 
regional and national story growth. You know, I got to tell you guys, it's actually profitable. So is it cheap enough, to, interesting enough to step up to? Let's take a close look with Michael Osanlu. He is the president CEO of Portillo's to get a better sense of where the company is headed. Mr. Osanlu, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Pleasure to be here. All right. So, Michael, I, I talk a lot to my friend Phil LeBeau, who covers airlines and autos. And when he heard that you were on, he said, oh, my, he was so excited. Now, he said the following. Yeah. He, I mean, literally took us in for the Portillo's interview. A little something to keep in mind from Chicago who loves it. Hot digs are highly regarded. But that doesn't yeah. mean that you'll necessarily like one if you're from Nathan's in New York. So how do we distinguish why we would like Chicago street food war, uh, nationwide versus say, you know what, that's a Chicago thing. I don't want it. Uh, I think you actually said at the very beginning of your uh, talk, Jim, our, our, the numbers speak for themselves, right? Our average unit does $8.3 million. We have units that are well over eight, nine million dollars in Florida, in Arizona. Uh, I, th- I think we're a sleeping giant. The economics of a Portillo's are simply second to none of any restaurant chain in America. And we are so early in our growth curve. Right. That's why we're such an exciting right. concept. Now that's two and a half times anybody else. OK, so how are you putting up yeah. those kinds of numbers? Two and a half times. How are you doing? Yeah. Look, it, the restaurant business is simple in some ways. You have to give amazingly delicious, craveable food at a great price point in a comfortable, great service environment. And we do that in spades. The other thing that we do that's really special is we have great dining rooms, but we have behemoth drive-throughs. All of our drive-throughs are two lanes. We have people going through those in six to eight minutes, regardless of how long the line is, and all of our food is made to order. So that kind of flexibility allows you to be super successful. Now, you know, I remember speaking many, many years ago in the 80s, mid 80s, to the Home Depot people saying, listen, if you ever opened a a, a Home Depot near New York City, your stock would double because all the people who work in New York City on Wall Street would try it and realize it. Well, I was wrong. It tripled. I mean, if we had one of yours on Wall Street, if we had one of yours around here using one of the drive throughs where all the rich people live, you know, work on Wall Street. I mean, maybe that's what needs to happen because your profitability is incredible. You know, we, we have uh, we have an amazing beef bus and we took that as part of our IPO tour all across Manhattan. Right. We we're in Midtown. We we're downtown. We we're on Wall Street. Uh, and, and, and to your point, I'll tell you, we got so much investor excitement after being able to try the food. Right. Because food is not something you can talk about intellectually. Food is something you've got experience. Right. When you have one of our hot, crispy French fries cooked in beef tallow, you get a beef sandwich in your hands, you get a hot dog. <laughs> It's just different. You know, you do something. I got to appreciate appreciate. I always read almost everything that any company puts out. And you do a yeah. Q&A. And your Q&A, best Q&A, is from July 11th. It's just brilliant. Your last one is, why isn't Portillo's profitable? And then you explain why it is. This is genius. All of the yeah. questions you pose, and this is available to anyone, are the ones that I want people to ask before they pull the trigger. You are uniquely yeah. attuned to what an investor wants. How is that possible? You run restaurants. Yeah, well, you know what, though? But it's it's if you really look at it simplistically, investors are not that complicated, right? They want to know that they're putting their money in something that's safe, something that has long-term growth potential. And I think most investors are smart enough to, you know, to sniff through the BS. I could talk to you about our, you know, revenue or growth, or growth but the fact that our margins are, you know, mid-20% restaurant-level margins, the size of our boxes, that's what investors love. And they love to know that we're a safe bet. 
right? You right. don't have to hope for one day profitability. We're profitable today. We generate a lot of cash. Well, this matters to me. Uh, I have a big fan of Dutch Bros, but I did not understand or see coming the real problems that Dutch Bros had with inflation, both with labor and cost of food. You've been upfront about it, but I want people, you know, I want you to tell people that yeah. you are not in denial about inflation here. No, inflation is real. We saw that. We see inflation affecting both commodities and then, of course, labor, right? So we see all of that. I think the one place that we're, we take a slightly different stance is um, we still want to provide great value to our guests. I, I, don't, I don't want them to feel gouged. You know what it's like right now. Everywhere you turn, prices are skyrocketing. Right. I still want guests to be able to go to Portillo's, have a great meal that's delicious and filling, and still pay. You know, the average check for us is like $10.35 right now. That's a great value. And in this environment, I want to be an oasis where people can get great value. We still price. We're just not going to be as aggressive as everybody else. And we are pricing just a little bit behind inflation right now. All right, well, let's do this. Uh, one, you, your company is one of the most uh, called on companies in our lightning round. Uh, and I see now why that is. I've done the research and talking to you. I want you to come back because you do have a tremendous story to tell. Uh, and, I, and if you want to, if you want to send some of that frozen food to us, the crew, the crew will go nuts yes. for it. They heard they heard that yes. exactly what you're talking about. They love the tallow fries. They don't know. Oh. They don't want any dietary fries. They want tallow right. fries. That's anyway, right. Michael Sanlu, who's the Portellos president and CEO, PTLO. Thank you so much for covering the show. It's great to talk thank to you, you, sir. Thank you very much, Jim. My pleasure. Look, it's got Phil LeBeau's stand, uh, stamp of approval, first of all. And if he likes it, then I like it. But second, they've got more research about what you're getting into. And I think this one is one of the few winners of the most recent crop of IPOs. Man, buddy's back in. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The lightning round is next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Sorry, Robert. I'm going to say no news. Thanks, and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time to let him come over. Michael in Georgia. Michael. Hey, Jim. How you doing today? I am doing well there, Chief. How about you? Hey, I'm calling about Crescent Point Energy. They got a boat bay, 1129. They paid over $3 billion of debt off in the last couple of years. It is a very inexpensive stock. There's absolutely no denying. I'm not going to deny anyone wants to buy any expensive stuff. But i got to tell you something. Devin has now lost 25 straight points. Chapel Trust owns it. It's ridiculous. Did a round trip. Going back. Buy it. Scott in Pennsylvania. Scott. Yo, Jimbo. Yo, Chief. Scott from, Hunting, from Huntington Valley, PA. Yeah, right from Huntington Valley. Oh, where my friend Tom McGrath is from. Fantastic. What's going on? I wonder if I ever bought ice cream from you down at the vet. I'm sure you did. Hey, Captain, what do you got there, sport? I got ice cream, vanilla, and chocolate. I have it down. What's going on? So <laughs> hey, hey listen, it was only 50 years ago. Electronics. Flextronics is such, it's such an inexpensive stock, I frankly do not get it. Jay Bill had a good quarter. I think Flex is every bit as good. I want to buy Flex, but I want to go to Sinu. Sinu. From Oklahoma. This is Catalina from Long Island saying booyah. Catalina, fantastic. What's happening? I want to know how we're going to be doing with gold. All right, now here's the problem. Dollar got strong. Gold got crushed. 
I still think gold is good, but it's a hedge in the same way that I like oil. And that ledge jump is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, good things might not come to those who wait. Kramer explains why Elon Musk should hit that tweet button now. Look, there's a reason Twitter stock jumped 8% today. Elon Musk might want to back out of this takeover, but I don't see it happening. After I read the brief Twitter's lawyer submitted last night, it was a good one, by the way. I think it's an open shut case. Twitter wins against Musk, hands down. I understand why Musk changed his mind about buying this thing, but there's an ironclad contract here. And it sure looks like Twitter dotted every I, crossed every T. Unless Musk's lawyers can find some document in the bowels of this discovery where Twitter's management said they should all lie and make up documents to fraudulently entice Musk, he's going to lose. He's going to lose. So he better start coming up with a game plan for how to make Twitter better, something he's often promised, but so far has really failed to deliver. Hey, look, regardless of Musk's plans, though, I think the stock's a buy because he'll be forced to acquire it. And at a price likely not far from his $54.20 bid, 20 cents bid, you know, that's it's a nice game from here. Why? First, I want to say that 99% of what you've heard about this case is completely wrong. Musk has made endless claims that he didn't know things were so bad at Twitter before he decided to buy the business. But there are two huge facts that he leaves out. One, there's zero evidence Twitter lied about anything, including the number of bogus accounts. Zero. And two, this was a hostile takeover, for heaven's sake. Twitter initially didn't even want to sell. Musk is the one who insists on doing this deal. You can't go hostile and then play hard to get. More important, the Delaware Chancery Court will take into account all of Musk's promises and all the times he refused to be shown data by Twitter officers. Travesty. I wouldn't be surprised if the judge basically takes his Tesla stock and his funding from Morgan Stanley and just heave-ho, gives it to Twitter. Yeah, they can do that. Did you hear that from anybody else? They can do that. And that's what makes Twitter stock a buy. One way or another, that money is coming to Twitter shareholders, and the Twitter board of directors is adamant that no deal needs to be cut between the plaintiff and the defendant for some price that is slightly lower than what Musk offered. So what should Musk do? Well, if I were him, I'd fire his lawyers, just call me, and I would say, listen, go meet with Twitter and ask for a discount in exchange for an immediate close. Something like six or seven bucks off his $54.20 bid, which would still be a very nice deal given the stock currently trades around 36 the issue is, why should Twitter accept anything less than his, the 5420 they agreed on when they haven't done anything wrong at all? By contrast, Musk has exhibited endless bad faith at every turn. Please read the brief. Don't just attack me on Twitter saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. Read the brief, especially his denial of getting the information that he needed. Turns out Twitter opened up to him everything he wanted. Uh, you know, they had six meetings. And they did that even though he said he might create a rival of Twitter, so they gave him all the ammo he needs to do that. Now, you can bet that Musk doesn't want any of this. In this environment, Twitter's worth much less than what he agreed to pay for it. His lawyers are going to ask for discovery in the hope they can find some email that says, let's sandbag Musk with numbers that look better than they really are and fool him into buying us. If anything like that exists, it could crush the deal. But I bet it doesn't exist. And anything Musk says about how Twitter has used this period to fire people, that's another complaint that he has. Oh, that's allowed under the go and creep. Go read this fine print, will you? 
And that's why Musk would be foolish not to cut a deal right now. That's why Twitter's management should take it, given how uncertain the space is. What's the point in waiting? Sell it to him. or Take the Tesla shares in the debt. It's a better deal for both if they arrive at a price sooner rather than later. Alexa like is always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.